follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash CFRC. You're listening to Season 4, Episode 11 of Right of Reply on CFRC 101.9 FM. This week, Right of Reply examines the issue of sexual assault on university campuses. First, we discuss The Hunting Ground, a documentary that details the pandemic of sexual violence on American college campuses. We are later joined by Victoria Gibson, Assistant News Editor of the Queen's Journal, to discuss Queen's new policy regarding sexual assault. So a big inspiration for this episode was a lot of our committee saw the documentary The Hunting Ground, which was um, filmed in 2015. And it's a documentary about the incidences of sexual assault on college campuses in the United States. And the documentary follows um, a number of a number of women, but primarily focuses on Annie Clark and Andrea Pino. Um, and they tell their story of sexual assault, but also want to highlight in this documentary that it is a national epidemic. It's not specific to their school at UNC Chapel Hill, but it's actually a national epidemic. And probably even more importantly, um, it's looking at how the universities are dealing with sexual assault on campus. And um, it talks about how the universities take great pains to cover up instances of sexual assault on their campuses. Yes, the movie was hugely inspirational for our committee, and I think it highlighted there's two distinct, they're overlapping, but two distinct issues. The instances of sexual assault and sexual violence on American campuses, they said that it was 16% of women in the U.S. are sexually assaulted while they are in college. But in addition to that, it's the way in which the crimes are treated by the universities. And I think, as Hill mentioned earlier on um, in our discussions prior to the recording, that Many of the women in the documentary, they said that, you know, their sexual assault was one thing and that was horrible, but the way they were treated by their universities, by the institutions in which they had placed their trust, that made it so much worse. And I think that that's what needs to be stressed, that it's not just the, I mean, the attackers, they deserved punishment and that needs to be addressed, but it's really as well the horrible way in which the universities have abandoned these young women and men who have been sexually assaulted while going to school. I think one of the points that the documentary does a good um, job of illustrating is maybe the reasons why these universities are not um, responding appropriately to sexual assaults, and that is primarily the financial incentive to do so. Um, They discuss the role of both fraternities and athletics in the documentary. For fraternities, um, the second most common type of insurance claim against fraternities is sexual assault. So it's definitely an issue amongst fraternities, but because um, over 60% of alumni donations are from people who have been in Greek life, there is an incentive um, not to sort of highlight this connection between Greek life and sexual assault because they want to maintain these um, donations. And then I guess also similarly with athletics, um, U.S., the U.S. sports industry is a multi-billion-dollar industry, and so, and so you have another huge incentive to cover cover this up. Absolutely. I mean, for me, one of the most jarring stories of the hunting ground was that of Erica Kinsman, who was raped at her school, Florida State University, by Jameis Winston. And at the time that she was attempting to get the investigation going forward and have charges placed against Jameis Winston, he was awarded the Heisman Trophy for being the best college quarterback in all of the United States. Um, incredibly prestigious. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure what the um, legality of this, but I'm sure he was already at this time 
receiving financial endorsements for both, you know, commercial institutions and the school itself. FSU, I know, is receiving huge financial incentives for keeping this man um, on the football team. And then he went on to be the number one NFL draft pick. So the level of impunity that surrounds these athletes, I mean, I remember they talked about how um, – campus security isn't allowed on the state in the stadium grounds the coaches aren't allowed are permitted to basically hide their players from from law enforcement and it's and this girl was ultimately driven out of her school and driven out of her town which just shows the dedication and devotion these people have to their schools and their athletes they were willing to push this girl out of her home because she um basically reported an attack so that was one thing that i thought it would be interesting thing to explore whether or not Canadian universities like Queen's, perhaps they don't have as much of an issue because there isn't this huge sporting institution. I mean, we do have our sports teams, but they are not, they're a fraction of the size um, in terms of significance, in terms of numbers of fans, and importantly, in terms of money. But I wonder what you think about if our lack of sports, our lack of Greek life in relation to the U.S. would perhaps make things easier um, at Queen's. I think it probably does play a role but um, at the root of all of this is the reputation of these schools and I think that reputation um, is still um, a key issue in Canadian universities. I know in the hunting ground one of the experts that is interviewed compares universities who um, acknowledge the pervasiveness of sexual assaults on their campus to those universities sending out letters to prospective parents and saying Welcome to Queen's University. Um, there is a large chance that your child will be sexually assaulted while they're at Queen's. Um, looking forward to seeing them in the fall. So I think that um, in that sense, the reputation is still important. And unless all universities sort of step forward and say, this is what we're doing to um, deal with sexual assaults on campuses. This is These are our new policies and we'll take it very seriously. Until all universities in Canada successfully do that, then the first university that does that, I think, will sort of um, face a backlash or it will hurt their reputation. I know it's hard to... Um, it'd be hard as a university to be motivated to be that first university because I think someone else said they'd be the rape university or some kind of glib name that kind of like reduces the severity and the scope of the problem because, I mean, they mentioned the hunting ground again that I think something like 80% of schools report 0% sexual assault, something bizarre like that, which we know can't be true, but that just is the reporting the reporting prevalence right now because people are so scared to report and so that's obviously problematic but it's beneficial for the school because they can say we have a you know zero percent chance of your child being assaulted on our campus or whatever the number is whereas if you actually looked at what was going on you had to say you know there is a 16 17 20 percent chance of your child being sexually assaulted that is not going to look good it's not going to encourage anyone's parents to drop off their children and it's kind of you need to think of it as a crime like can you imagine if you knew that in kingston we'd have a 20 percent chance of being you know a victim of armed robbery like that just would be unacceptable and this should be unacceptable as well but somehow it's been kind of swept under the rug yeah i think also an interesting comparison between canada and the u.s Andrea and Annie use Title IX complaints as a way to um, hold universities in the U.S. accountable to the sexual assaults that are occurring. So a Title IX complaint is um, a gender equity law that ensures the right to equal education for both genders. And so schools in violation of Title IX, they'll get their federal funding taken away. And so this is something that Andrea and Annie have been going around U.S. universities and colleges and helping um, other students file Title IX complaints against their university. Um, so I'm interested if there's something comparable that 
Canadian students could do to incentivize, they're not incentivized, but force their universities to take sexual assault more seriously. Something I would have loved to ask Annie if she thinks that some of the policies put in place by Queen's and other universities following a Toronto Star investigation that showed um, that most universities in Ontario didn't have any sort of standing legislation. And I mean, I'm really proud of Queen's for, for taking this and going forward and um, in my mind, improving the lack of um, legislation at all. But I'm not sure if having a document, you know, pushed through by our Queen Senate is going to change the lived reality of sexual assault victims. But I noticed when we looked, went over the document that Queen's has put out that they listed, um, you know, reporting mechanisms, ways to report sexual assault. And number one was seeking law enforcement. And number two, following that, was seeking someone on campus. And to be honest, I think that's a good sign because normally, you know, they'd encourage you to kind of go through the bureaucratic channels so that your complaint is sort of muffled by the time it would actually reach the public and reach um, any kind of official filing um, board or any filing level because then they can keep their stats low. It doesn't go in public record, which is obviously incredibly damaging to um, the reputation of any school who has that sort of record. I think another great thing that the hunting ground highlights is that sexual assault is not um, just something that women face, but men can also be um, victims and survivors of sexual assault. And this is something that I think the mass media generally ignores. And when men are um, victims of sexual assault, this can sort of question their 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 sexuality or their perceived strength as a man these sort of gender norms play a lot into this dynamic and I think this is something that Hunting Graham did well by interviewing um, men who'd been sexually assaulted but also just talking generally about um, men and sexual assault which I think is something the media doesn't often do. Absolutely. I mean, women are more likely to be sexually assaulted. That is a fact. But unfortunately, this fact has served to obfuscate the horrible crimes that many, many men have had to undergo. And they still are victims of sexual violence. But unfortunately, I don't think get the detention they deserve. I think as well, something interesting to look at is their Title IX complaints specifically. I mean, I think it seemed as though in the movie they were just looking for some sort of legal avenue to stop the impunity that surrounds the um, perpetrators of sexual violence. But the idea of creating an unsafe place to go to school is actually really true. I mean, many of the women um, in the documentary talked about how they would see their perpetrators, they see the people who attacked them going to class, walking around campus. And the idea that that, that could happen to them and then the, someone who did that to them and t- perpetrated that attack could then go on with their lives with complete impunity. I mean, they talked about um, in the movie Emma Salkowitz, who was attacked, um, sexually attacked while she was at Columbia University, um, went through the university channels. The man, or the boy rather, was found to be not guilty of the crime. And so as, as a protest, she carried around her mattress um, until graduation, actually, as a part of a performance art thesis called Carry That Weight. And it was interesting, I think prior to seeing The Hunting Ground, I found this story fascinating because I thought on one hand, this girl has been failed by her school. She's been sexually assaulted on campus by someone she knew she went through the legal channels um, and she's completely failed by our campus but a part of me thought you know I trust legal systems I trust the systems of schools so is it unfair of her to kind of reject the claim or the process of her school and then you know do this this kind of really widely publicized um, sort of performance but watching the hunting ground I realized I mean I think it's something like nine upwards of 90 percent of um, sexually assaults reported actually happen the way they said they happened, right? It's not as though there's this false reporting pandemic. It's the same, if not less than, you know, claims of 
of murder or theft, right? And that's, I think, a really problematic assumption that there's this high false reporting rate of sexual assault more than other crimes, which is just frankly untrue. And that's something I'm almost embarrassed to sort of fallen under before because I would question these girls who would, you know, not not question that, that they've been hurt in some way, but I would wonder, I mean, if you go through legal channels and the person is found not guilty, is it fair to keep pursuing it? And I now understand that it's, it is absolutely fair because they've been failed by the channels that you'd think would be supporting them. I think, I think on the idea of failed channels, um, the hunting ground highlights how horrific the ratio is of people who do report sexual assaults and how often those those um, reports lead to expulsion. I know at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, the ratio is 136 reports to zero expulsions. So there's more people who are expelled for cheating or for plagiarism than they would be for sexual assaults. And I think that that is a key um, issue in the system. And I think lens to the, what you're talking about, Holly. I think it's funny, like the ratio to expulsions. I mean, I remember in the movie as well, they're talking about many of the expulsions would occur two weeks after graduation or a week after the quarterback season had ended. Like just bizarre as if being expelled, you know, subsequent to graduation had any effect. Like that's, that just, like it shows, as I said, the universities are complicit in these crimes. And again, I think that although we probably agree that because Queens lacks the our sports teams and our Greek life lack the economic weight and um, the power that the American ones do. I don't think that doesn't mean that Queens hasn't in some ways and other Canadian schools have failed victims of sexual assault because it's not as visible and resources are not as available as they probably should be. I think there are perhaps a couple of silver linings, if we can call them that, from the hunting ground. I think that sexual assault has um, risen to the top of the national agenda in the U.S. Obama has talked about it at great length. I know that Annie Clark, one of the main characters, has been working with a senator to create um, new policies that will sort of more effectively deal with sexual assault on U.S. campuses. And then sort of specific to Annie and Andrea, they have created an organization called EROC and Rape on Campus. And this um, organization has been doing a lot of great work to support survivors of sexual assault and also to educate people. And I think one of the most interesting aspects of this is that they're looking to provide media training to journalists on how to appropriately cover topics related to sexual violence, which I think is something that we can all um, agree on that the media would definitely benefit from. I think the, we hope that the uh, Hunting Ground movies like this, episodes like this, will perhaps um, in some ways lead to increased awareness and, but not beyond awareness, actually improve conditions for victims of sexual assault. Victoria, thank you so much for joining us today. Anytime. <laughs> you recently published a piece outlining the lack of sexual assault policy on Canadian campuses, including our very own Queen's University. Can you walk us through some of the issues you cover in your article? Definitely. Um, I think the biggest thing with the article is the fact that it's not just about policy. It's not just about documentation. It's about a an enormous void in Canada right now um, that has been a void that has been noticed for 15 months now. Um, the pr context of the article was that in October of 2014, the journal actually published a fantastic piece by Sebastian Leck that addressed the sexual violence issue on campus as well as the lack of policy. And um, we were met with a letter from Principal Wolf 
in response to it. However, there wasn't any action taken at the time. Um, but then a month later in November, the Toronto Star published a piece that called out all of the schools that were lacking in policy across Canada. And I think if there was one school that didn't have a policy, that would be a problem. It would be a mistake and it would be addressable. But the fact that there were 93 out of 102 Canadian campuses that didn't have a policy is an epidemic and there's no other word for it. Um, so what we did is we took a look at what has happened in the 15 months since to six of the major universities in Canada. We looked at uh, U of T, Ryerson, York, Queens, McGill, and UBC. And I don't think that even we were expecting what we found. Um, Queens at the time of the publication did not have a final policy. It came out later in the day after we published it. Um, U of T after 15 months of discussion had only co just come to the realization that they needed to begin drafting a policy. Um, UBC is in the middle of an enormous problem where assaults were being covered up on their campus by their equity office. Notably, there was one student who assaulted six women and it wasn't addressed um, properly. Uh, McGill is currently in the process of their final drafts. However, their working group um, spoke to us and let us know that they were experiencing problems with anything being done solidly, put together as a f formal policy. Um, Ryerson actually had quite a good policy that they've implemented since, so that was a a bit of a shining hope in the middle of it, and York has a policy as well, but it's being taken to the Human Rights Council of Ontario right now. Um, in a case from a survivor, Mandy Gray, who has said that the university has not protected her as a survivor of sexual assault, as well as other survivors. So the piece kind of looks at each school and what has happened, the assaults that have taken place on the campus, we tried to really humanize them. Um, as well as looking at the policy process in the last 15 months and what is still left to be done, and there's quite a bit. So in having these conversations and researching this topic, it's incredibly important, but it's also exceedingly emotional. Mm -hmm. What kind of toll does that take on a, a journalist like you? You know, th that was something that we had a lot of conversations about um, when we were in the journal house putting this story together, because as I said, People on journal staff have been reporting on this problem since before my time there. Um, and I was speaking to our two editors-in-chief who are incredible and resilient, and they have reported on this faillessly since the issue has cropped up. And one of them said to me that I needed to take care of myself while I was writing it, because it can take a huge toll to have these conversations, to talk to people who have been assaulted, who have had their privacy violated and who have not been taken care of or perceived to have not been taken care of by the administration of their schools and to feel like these stories are being written and there's little to no response, um, especially at the beginning. There's been more response now. Um, it's very difficult to feel like you're not being heard and you're writing these stories and they're falling into a void somewhere. Um, but I think writing it, there's also... <sighs> There's a fantastic sense that you're actually doing something, that you're looking at this and you're looking at what's happening and you are, to use the words of somebody I spoke to the other day, holding the administration's feet to the fire and saying, "This, we still are on top of this. It has been 15 months. We know that you're working on it, but we are going to keep pressing and we are going to keep pressing until we reach a final stage where people feel comfortable on campus and they feel safe. And I think with the policy that's been passed at Queen's um, on the 4th, it's a fantastic step, but we're not there yet. Right. 
And I think this is something that we're going to continue reporting on no matter how emotional it is, because it should be. I was speaking to Mike Young, our rector, the other day, and he was talking about the term sexual violence as opposed to sexual assault. And he was saying that, you know, it's been criticized as a harsh term, but it should be harsh because this is not a cute topic. And it shouldn't be a cute topic and it shouldn't be easy to report on, but that's why we're doing it. So. <laughs> and on that, that note of being critical of, of our school and, and holding them to account, how important is that to you as a journalist? I think it's very important, and we do have a relationship with Queen's administration where on a number of topics they are very good with us, and we have been able to reach them throughout this year to ask what the process has been like. I know I've had several conversations with people like Provost Harrison um, around what's going on, why are there delays, why are we still on this stage, and I know one of those delays was waiting for the, um, the Ontario government to announce their new act, Bill 132, I believe it is. Um, that addresses sexual violence. So the university is doing a fair job right now. Um, but I think it's our job to keep them accountable because one of the thing, one of the trends that we've noticed is that the administration tends to be responsive and reactive rather than proactive. Um, and we just want them to do more than they're mandated to do by the government or by media attention from something like the Toronto Star. So we've all read the article here. We loved it. It was on the front page of the journal. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, but do you feel like this story has received the attention it deserves? I think that's a difficult question. Um, it's hard to judge the attention something deserves as the writer of it because I don't want to overinflate it. But obviously, I think the issue is deserving of attention. And that's that's a lot of why we put the article together because... A lot of campuses and a lot of campus newspapers especially have been reporting on this for not just the past 15 months but the past number of years. Um, whether that's the UBC at UBC or the Varsity at U of T, um, they've been reporting on it tirelessly. And we started to notice that we were all publishing stories that were more or less the same. Um, that we're saying, we're still in limbo, we're waiting. Uh, the working groups are putting it together, they're working on it, they're waiting. Um, and that was what I started to notice and I brought up to some other members of our journal news team um, and that's when we started reaching out to the other campus news reporters who were an incredibly valuable resource while we were putting this together because they have been keeping incredible track of what's been going on and they've been reporting on it really really well um, and I think it took putting them together to get a lot more attention on the issue because you can't judge how critical a problem is while you're still in your own bubble. Mm -hmm. If we look at something and say this is an issue on the Queen's campus, that's one thing and it is troubling. But if we look at something and say this is an issue that puts students in danger across Canada regardless of what campus they're on, people are more likely to pay attention and because of that I think the article's actually gotten quite a bit of positive feedback. I've spoken to a lot of amazing students and activists and reporters including the two reporters who wrote the original Toronto Star article, Jamie and Emily, and they're incredible um, and discussing what to do moving forward to keep on the issue. The one thing that we haven't seen is a response from any of the administrations that were involved in the stories that we reported on um, across the six schools. We haven't heard back from any of their administrative bodies, um, which I would like to see. I would like to see them acknowledge what has happened, why it has taken so long, and what they're going to do moving forward and to make some concrete promises rather than 
um, just letting it slide. So you mentioned it was quite a collaborative process writing this mm -hmm. story. How much involvement did you have with the other schools? Or this is uh, really uh, a Queens-driven effort. Um, I'd say the original idea for the story came from Queens. It came from the journal. We, I sat down with our news editor, Jacob, and I explained to him what I wanted to do. And he uh, trusted me to put it together. But from there, I knew that I couldn't grasp how complicated the issues were on other campuses unless I spoke to the people who knew it best because I know if somebody was going to write about sexual assault on the Queens campus from another school, um, I know how much of a resource the journal could be there. So I spoke to the news teams uh, at UBC, at McGill, and at Ryerson. I wasn't able to get a hold of York, um, but they were phenomenal. I know I Skyped in with the news team at UBC um, because long distance phone calls. Um, and they were great, whether that was sending us their coverage that they've done, um, timelines of events, uh, resources, people to speak to, people to reach out to next. Um, so it was a very collaborative effort for the story. And you'll see at the end of the feature that we put out, um, they're, they have all of their names on the bottom because they were just absolutely incredible at directing where to go and directing us where we should continue to look. Um, so all of the interviews and the information was compiled by the journal team. Uh, however, I don't think we could have done it if it weren't for the other student papers. And I have the utmost respect for them. Fantastic. <laughs> What's something you'd say to people who still haven't read this article? Obviously, I would say that I think it should be read because I think it's important to familiarize yourself with not just the policies and not just the voids and what's missing on a technical administrative level, but the personal stories that impact people because I think that's the way that change happens is for people to care and the easiest way to care is to humanize something and that's why we spoke to and researched the stories of survivors of assaults. Um, I know I, since our publication of the piece, I've spoken to Mandy Gray, who's the student at York, who is uh, taking her case through the Ontario Human Rights Tribunal, and just being able to speak to her about the fact that we covered it fairly and with integrity, and that we're keeping on the issue. Um, I think that's why the story matters. So to anybody who hasn't read it, I would say you need to understand how this impacts people on a personal level to understand why it's so important to address it on a university level. And you, you'd mentioned underreporting. That's something that came up when we were doing our own research. We kept mm -hmm. seeing what are the real numbers, what are the real numbers. Yeah. And you mentioned that you want to see that number rise, which is, is not ideal, but it, it's something that needs to be done in order to address this issue. Yeah. How important is the school's response versus people coming out and talking about it? Um, well, I think the issue isn't that the school is not reporting assaults, because the school, I don't think, has a mandate to report assaults to the general public, but it's recording them. And it's making people feel comfortable if they want to speak about their assault after it happens, making them feel like talking about it will not affect their case and won't affect how it's handled because I know a lot of issues have come up specifically with Brock in the past week where uh, you know a sexual harassment case came up and it was handled by the university but the student felt as if they couldn't speak about it that they had to keep it confidential 
Um, and I think that's an issue. I think it's where people feel comfortable speaking about it, not necessarily that they have to, and it's keeping a good record. Um, like I know Ryerson, who has a policy in place, um, saw 57 sexual assault reports between uh, 2009 and 2013, and that was the highest number in Canada. And when you look at that at first, it seems like a crisis, but then you realize it's actually because they're handling it well, in my opinion, um, and in the opinion of a lot of people who looked at these numbers and these values, um, because these assaults are happening, whether we like it or not. And keeping track of them and making pe people feel as if they can talk about it and as if if they want to speak publicly about their experience in order to raise awareness or in order to make other people feel comfortable reporting their assaults is very important. So I think the school needs to keep better track of the assaults that are happening as well as creating a, an environment where people feel that they can speak. From what I understand, the new policy is um, has everything to do with acting on um, a sexual violence case after it's happened, mm -hmm. where to go from there. Yeah. What about um, what about taking action before and prevention before? Mm -hmm. Is there any is there anything in the in the policy or like in a Queen's guideline somewhere that says that says like maybe the the school should sort of uh, take action and educate the general mm -hmm. population of the school prior to these um, cases or instances of violence before they even happen, yeah. rather than just acting afterwards? Well, I think the policy was created in order to specifically deal with assaults that have already happened, but I, like we've seen a really good shift this year in terms of education initiatives. I know there were a lot more initiatives around consent, around having difficult conversations about sexual activity and alcohol and where they intersect, and those are really hard to have, but Queens has put some effort this year into putting them in events like orientation week um which i think is a great step forward and that's another thing that the uh, sexual assault coordinator is going to be tasked with once they are hired is creating more of these initiatives um, so i think in that sense we are making good progress um, but i think the policy specifically was created as an explanation of what to do if you are assaulted because previously it was just going through the harassment policies at Queens which were not specific and they didn't define certain terms that make it more comfortable to say yes this was an assault when you have a definition of what is sexual assault what is sexual harassment what is consent and when is it missing that makes it a lot more comfortable I think on a survivor to look at it and say okay this criteria was not satisfied therefore I can report this as an assault because I have this documentation that justifies that and that makes me feel as if I am going to be protected moving forward through this process. And this process, how involved do you think school should be? Do you think this is, when it's a criminal matter, should it be going through the police or is this something that if it happens on campus, people feel as if they're obligated to deal with it through a student body? You know, being on a campus is a unique situation because there are so many accommodations that you can take aside from criminal charges. And if you go through the policy, it is outlined that if you go to this coordinator and say that you have been assaulted, they will aid you in contacting the Kingston police if you so see fit. But there are people who don't want to go through that process for whatever reason. Um, 
or even don't want to go through that process at the time. So being able to just go in and, for example, have a rape kit processed and have the information that, yes, this happened for if you want to report it at a later date, because it can be, from the people that we've spoken with, a very emotional process. Um, So I think the university does have a responsibility to create an environment where somebody can come in and say, I'm not ready to go to the police yet, but I need to move my class schedule. I can't live in the same residence as this person. Um, I can't write an essay for tomorrow because I've just been assaulted. Um, And those are sort of lower level steps that can be taken to make sure somebody feels safe until or if they feel like ever uh, bringing the situation to the police. Obviously, that would be the best case scenario, but not everybody is ready right away to do that. So we talked a lot about progress and Mm -hmm. stories like yours are coming out and we're talking about it and we're having the conversations that need to be had. Mm -hmm. But what does moving forward with this issue look like to you? I think moving forward, the first priority would be looking at the policy that's just passed. And I know the university, one of the first things that they're going to be doing, um, according to when we spoke to them right after it was released, is aligning it to the province's uh, new bill, which came out after our policy. So they're going to have to go through and make sure those things line up so that there's some kind of continuity between schools, some kind of consistency. But on top of that, there's parts of the policy that may need some looking at. For example, the fact that um, the definition of consent in our policy does not include uh, the word verbal consent. That is not required in our policy. Uh, And I was, again, speaking to Rector Mike Young about this, and this was something that he would like to see addressed in terms of consistency with other Queen's initiatives. Um, And just having that kind of technicality addressed can make a big difference. Um, As well as moving forward, I think until we have the sexual assault coordinator role, until we have a sexual assault crisis center, um, is putting in certain contacts in the interim so people know who to go to. When, if somebody was assaulted right now and they looked at the policy, they would be addressed, they would be directed to address somebody who does not yet exist on our campus. And I think we need something in the interim that is clear, that's a clear contact for who to go to, what they can do, and what to do moving forward. So just on that note, are there resources on campus right now that you think are doing their job well? I think there are plenty of resources on campus that are doing their job well, but it's been kind of a dispersed portfolio where these are not people's jobs. This is not the only thing they do. They are not designated to deal with sexual assault. Um, For example, we have uh, Student Wellness Services, which has a number of absolutely phenomenal counselors um, who have been handling this since the interim policy, the interim procedures, sorry, um, came out um, earlier this year. I believe it was in June or July. Um, And they've been handling that since. And they have done a really excellent job. And there are great counselors at LaSalle. There are a number of resources, but it's not clear which one to go to right now. Um, Because there's been a lot of people who, since since the information has come out, have come together to try and be a safety net. But it's a Band-Aid solution. And I think we need something a little more permanent. So if 
the next step by the university was to really get on hiring their coordinator and creating this center, that would be the best thing to do. I think the most important thing with this is we are making really great steps forward. We have little victories. We have a policy now and it's comprehensive and it defines some really important things that we have needed on campus for a really long time. But I think one of the most important things is this is a starting gate, it's not the finish line. We need to stay on it. We can't rest on the laurels of we have this now. We need to continue to have conversations with students and continue to have conversations with survivors until students on campus feel as if they are safe and feel as if they can report an assault and have someone in their court and be fairly processed and be able to be vocal about it. Um, and I think that is the most important thing, is knowing that we're not there yet, even if we're making strides. Thank you. No problem. <laughs> At Right of Reply, the discussion topic this week is the Queen's University Policy on Sexual Violence. To begin our discussion, I'll first read a statement from the Director of the Human Rights and Equity Offices, which will outline the goals and origins of the sexual violence policy. In November of 2014, Principal Wolf directed the Sexual Assault Prevention and Response Working Group to expedite its recommendations for the university on enhancing and creating programs that address sexual violence. Principal Wolf called upon the group to make their findings public and available to the Queen's community by the end of the 2014-2015 school year. The Working Group created an Interim Sexual Assault Support and Response Protocol in December of 2014. In June 2015, the Working Group released a detailed report including recommendations to guide the University in addressing sexual violence. In July, the principal directed an implementation team, chaired by Provost and Academic Vice Principal Alan Harrison, to advance the working group's recommendations. The development of Queen's sexual violence policy involved extensive consultation and was posted for comment from the university community. This feedback was incorporated into the final draft of the policy. The policy was approved by the Board of Trustees on March 4, 2016. A dedicated policy on sexual violence is an important step for Queens. The policy outlines the options that are available to anyone who has witnessed or experienced sexual violence and the university's responsibilities related to awareness, education, training, and reporting. The sexual violence policy also includes an expanded list of definitions, a statement of Queen's commitment to those who have experienced sexual violence, and a statement on the maintenance of annual statistics without identifying information on disclosed and reported incidents. The policy reflects the recommendations received from the working group, input from the implementation team, and best practices across the sector. It gathers into one document all of the services and supports that we provide at Queen's. It also aligns with the Sexual Violence and Harassment Plan Act, which was passed in the legislature on March 8, 2016. Although the legislation has now passed, some modifications may need to be made when the associated regulations are adopted. The development of the policy was an iterative process and involved extensive consultation with campus stakeholders. Student involvement, a requirement of the Ontario government's sexual violence legislation, has been considerable and has included student representatives on both the working group and the implementation team. The university is working on several initiatives with respect to sexual violence and prevention. 
Hiring is underway for a new dedicated sexual violence prevention and response coordinator and will lead campus-wide education, response, support, training, and advocacy activities. There are many resources, services, and supports available on campus and in the community, and this coordinator will add to those resources. Noah and Chris, you recently had an interview with the Queen's Journal on the subject. Uh, what do you take away from that interview? We spoke with Victoria Gibson. She just uh, ran a piece in response to basically a year later what's happened since uh, the Toronto Star article came out. I, uh, I know for me, one of, the, one of the big questions that I had for Victoria was, since the 2014 article, from my understanding was, the Queen's policy sort of, and along with all the other universities that Victoria talked about, including McGill and UBC, was that the, the new sexual violence policies that they're adopting came as a response as from this Toronto Star article. And now that after 15 months, um, where where the universities stand in terms of the in terms of the their policies. And my big question was, um, where has the attitude at Queen's changed from 2014 or is this just a policy to save face in response to this article for the demand mm -hmm. and uh, do you what is the school doing are they equipped to handle this and I really liked what Victoria had to say I thought she really uh, really articulated herself well and spoke uh, to how the school is um, doing a lot of beneficial things that we weren't seeing in the past right and she made the very a good point about how it's been an incredibly reactive process here at Queen's, not a proactive process. The story came out a year ago. Uh, schools were forced to respond to this, and some of them have come out with some very good policy. We, we're not sure if, it, if it's working or not yet, but it, it, it's it's there. They've made the effort. They've made the, the proper steps to move forward with it, with this issue. So I think we talked a little bit about the responsibility of journalists and enforcing the hand of a lot of these institutions to be accountable and I think this story certainly did a very good job of that. Yeah. So I have here the actual university policy on sexual violence and I think we'll just kind of run through some of these excerpts and get a sense of what exactly has been passed and what kind of changes we should expect to see. Um, looking at the definition section, there are two key definitions of course would be sexual violence and consent. Uh, and I think it's very interesting that the definition of consent remains to this day a controversial definition, um, or at least a definition that uh, a lot of people have differing opinions on. So I'll read the definitions now. Sexual violence means any sexual act or act targeting a person's sexuality, whether the act is physical or psychological in nature, that is committed, threatened, or attempted against a person without the person's consent, and includes sexual assault, sexual harassment, stalking, indecent exposure, voyeurism, and sexual exploitation. Consent means an active, direct, voluntary, unimpaired, and conscious choice and agreement between adults to engage in sexual activity. So what are your views on these definitions? Do you think these are all-encompassing? Uh, from, from, from what the policy has laid out as the definition of consent, it seems very strict and laid out, and it mm -hmm. seems very clear-cut. But I still think, in practice, there's this idea of consent that people aren't really, uh, that, that people are still confused about. Um, so what do, you, what do you think that would be? Well, the, the Toronto Star article spoke about a woman who was sexually assaulted by her own boyfriend, and so 
I think in that instance, and then some of the responses, well, you're already in a relationship with this with this man. So are you by default consenting because you are you've consented to the relationship? Does that mean you've consented to all the sexual activity? My opinion would say no, and so would that definition of of sexual assault that's in the policy now. But I think when it comes when it comes into practice, and then you're you're actually discussing things, I think it's more of a gray area than 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 what's just on the paper. Do you think it would have been maybe a smart idea to include in the definition of consent the fact that consent can be withdrawn? Yes. I think that I think that's a really good issue or a really good point to raise. And Victoria also discussed in our in our interview with her that it doesn't say anything about verbal consent and that she would have liked to have seen verbal consent in in the definition. And I think that's key. And then just because you've consented to one thing, um, whether it's uh, whether it's five minutes before and then you consent to or then you with then you take away your consent five minutes later, I think that that all needs to be taken into consideration. Just because you've consented to one thing doesn't give you, or doesn't mean that you've consented to everything. Something I think is interesting about the definition of sexual violence that you just talked about is um, things like stalking, which I think a lot of the narrative is about um, just sex, and I don't think that we often talk about consent um, in other realms. So I would say that um, the policies and the... um, the attitudes of people might be changing around consent and sex, but I think there's maybe a bit more of a leg in terms of other things, um, just at the bar or on campus or whatever it may be, things like catcalling or things like um, like stalking might be might be slow to slower to change than consent, just related specifically to sex. Mm. Building off of this concept of consent, um, the policy includes a responsibilities section, and I'll read from it. Uh, A particular focus will be on promoting a culture of consent, including the following principles. Consent is active and not passive or silent. It is the responsibility of the person who wants to engage in sexual activity to obtain clear consent from the other person. Consent is required at all stages of sexual engagement, and that consent to one form of sexual activity does not imply consent to others. I think that kind of identifies Mm -hmm. the points we brought up. Consent can be withdrawn at any time. Consent is required regardless of the party's relationship status or sexual history together. And consent cannot be given by someone who is incapacitated by alcohol or drugs, who is unconscious, or who otherwise lacks the capacity to consent. So I think that responsibility section kind of addresses the concerns that we were having. I think, though, what I was talking about, and um, this policy is talking, I think, about what would happen if someone came and um, reported what had happened to them. But I think that the culture is something separate from what the policies are. And I'm not sure if the Queen's culture will necessarily change dramatically because of this policy. So I'm just, that's where I see the disconnect. I don't know if the culture is caught up to where this policy is trying to push it. Mm -hmm. I think that's an interesting point. I think there's certainly in researching this story and talking to people, there was a lot of complacency. I think a lot of people assumed there were services and policies already in place, but the fact of the matter is if something like this happens to you or someone you know, you want the best situation for them. You want the best resources available. And we're seeing that it's not. It's so important that sources and, and bodies like the journal are holding these, these uh, institutions to account because without that, I think that 
we assume a lot and, and we shouldn't. Mm. So according to the policy as written, um, in terms of resources provided, uh, the policy states, and I'm quoting from it again, uh, all persons who report an experience of sexual violence can be expected to be treated with compassion, dignity, and respect, provided with timely safety planning assistance, informed about on and off campus support services and resources available to them, provided with non-judgmental and sympathetic support, provided with academic, recreational, and housing accommodations as appropriate to prevent further unwanted contact with the alleged perpetrator if the alleged perpetrator is a member of the campus community, integral decision makers in situations pertaining to themselves, allowed to determine whether and to whom they wish to disclose or report their experience, including whether or not to pursue formal criminal and or university avenues of redress, whether or not to disclose to a support person and seek out personal counseling. Uh, So your thoughts on that section? I think it really differentiates what the school can provide uh, and uh, differentiates between what the school can provide and what uh, the criminal justice system can provide in like in Kingston um, specifically because uh, even prior to the interview that we that we did with Victoria I was still sort of confused as to why someone wouldn't just go to the police and let the police handle everything but then like just as that uh, as the policy states that the the school is going to to help victims accommodate with housing with right. if they want to move a test or something and if they don't want to seek um, criminal action and go to the police, then here's all the steps that you can do um, that that you can do if you don't want to take that route. And everything is going to be confidential and hopefully um, helpful. Now that that's affirmative and in place. Who? Um, two things I found interesting. One is the last note about counseling. I know that. Um, at Queen's generally, there is um, sort of uproar about how poor the counseling services are here. Mm-hmm. Not so much um, what they're providing, but the the quant- not the quality of service, but the quantity of service. People aren't able to get um, enough counseling hours. Um, there's long lines at places like the Peer Support Centre. And so I think that that's something that um, will be interesting to see how it plays out if you're sort of promising that people are going to get the counseling that they need or the counseling services able to support that. So I think that'll be interesting to play out. And Mm -hmm. then also, um, this seems like it focuses a lot on the duty of sort of the administration to act appropriately when someone's, um, someone reports sexual assault. And I think that this relates a lot to The Hunting Ground, which is the movie that we spoke about earlier in the episode. And in that movie, they talk a lot about how the administration in the United States is, um, focused more on the reputation of the school than treating the survivor appropriately and they're not um, incentivized to encourage people to um, to report and in fact teachers who do or teachers or professors who do speak up often will lose their tenure or they can't get tenure or they're marked as troublemakers who can't switch to institutions so I think that this is important that it's um, highlighting administrator's role and um, making them accountable to actually help these survivors. On just just building off your comment about the counselors, I, I can see uh, as positive 
um, and beneficial as this policy is, I can sort of see some issues arising with some of that wording because if you're, um, let's say you go to the peer support center or you try to uh, take advantage of some of these resources and you say, I don't want, it says that if you don't want to go to the police in the policy, then you don't have to. But I can, you can sort of, um, you can sort of picture saying, well, I don't want to go to the police and then maybe the on um, like as just a uh, a personal in the counselor's mind or whoever you're speaking with might say well um how bad could it have been you know what i mean that sort of judgment like if you're not going to go to the police then do you really need to switch residences right or do you really need to move your test and sort of questioning well this is the problem of all the stigma right. associated with yeah. that's why i think one of the key yeah uh phrases there was uh, sympathetic and non-judgmental right um I think that is key, and I think that's a very difficult thing to actually put into practice. Yeah. But if it's going to be stated as a goal, I think that that's a start. Yeah, I think yeah. it's I think it's a great goal, but just yeah. as you said, like actually taking that from the paper and putting it into practice on the campus is another thing. Okay. Well, let's. Um, you're talking about reporting as well. I'll read again from the uh, the actual policy and get your views on this section. So this is the section on reporting options, uh, and I quote. Uh, Anyone who experiences or witnesses sexual violence may pursue any of the following reporting options. A. Criminal reporting option. Indu individuals may report their allegations through the criminal justice system by contacting the Kingston Police Force. If an individual chooses this route, campus security and emergency services and or the Office of Sexual Violence Education and Support can facilitate making a report to the police. B non-criminal, on-campus reporting options. Reports involving allegations against students and student groups can be made through the university's non-academic student misconduct system. Reports involving allegations against any member of the Queen's community can be made through the harassment, discrimination, complaint policy, and procedure. Reports involving allegations against any university employees can be made through the university's human resources policies and procedures. Anyone who has experienced or witnessed sexual violence may pursue more than one reporting option simultaneously. I think just reading that, one of the things that stands out is it's very important that they included student groups as well as just students, um, kind of including the idea of the systemic problems associated mm -hmm. with sexual violence, uh, especially when it becomes associated with hazing or any kind of group activity. What we also see on that, on that issue is schools covering up these events happening. This is new policy, yes, but is that gonna change whether or not they report this? Is it now responsibility of the police to become involved with schools? Or is that up to the person who brings a complaint forward? So I think if the person is choosing this tandem option of going criminally and through the school, I think that's best case scenario of a far from ideal situation. Mm -hmm. But again, what's, what's gonna be reported if the criminal justice system isn't involved in this? Mm -hmm. Something I'm interested in is um, what do you guys think the uh, implications are for a school like Queen's not to uh, better their sexual assault policy? I know in the States they talk a lot about um, that there's financial incentives through Greek life or through um, athletics to not report sexual assault um, because of the, just the sheer amount of money that it's bringing in and obviously we don't see that in the same ways mm -hmm. in Canada so um, our, because there's less of a sort of money issue in Canada do you think that um, 
it's just a matter of reputation like our well it, it's an interesting thing because yeah it, it's it's a big question of um universities reputations being on the line but i think in, in an interesting way that's been flipped uh with the new trend the way that this has been reported the way that certainly the journal is reporting it but not just the journal which is a smaller source but mm -hmm. larger sources um, they've kind of presented this as a race among universities that now that the issue has been raised now that people are talking about it more sharing their stories uh, it's kind of a race to see which university will respond first and which university will respond in the most comprehensive way and so I think you know that's probably a good thing that now we have a new incentive of saying unless you are talking about this your reputation will be at stake um, so I think that that will be a positive thing I think in terms of creating a new norm, um, there's so many university policies that I'm not aware of, but the fact yeah. that this one is getting um, a lot of attention, um, I think will mean that it matters more and it is better able to push a new norm and change culture. So maybe it's not just that the policy is being created, but that it's getting all of this attention that's the most important. I think we're having this, this big macro conversation across Canada and across the U.S. and in some states at least. But I think just to bring it back down to Queens, I think mm -hmm. that through Orientation Week and through residence associations, I think that to really have this conversation in these introductory levels when students are just coming to campus, when they're just being exposed to these new ideas, I think it's so important that this conversation is had there, not when it's too late, because that's really when we are, we're still being molded at that time. We're still open to to having these talks. Mm -hmm. I think another thing is that this topic, this conversation makes a lot of people uncomfortable and, and it should make them uncomfortable. I know that the Ontario government ran those ads uh, this past summer where it's showing these these horrible situations and you have this point of view camera and they look at them and say, hey, thanks for not saying anything, thanks for not doing anything. And people told me that they, they found that very impactful because they wanted to look away, but it's something we can't look away from. So I think by having these conversations more often and with more groups and with more people, it, it becomes easier to talk about. And when it becomes easier to talk about, it, it becomes more talked about. And that level of conversation being had is so important. Yeah. And I think that the more that we are able to, as, as the policy states, um, promote a culture of consent, including the following principles, as it, as it stated earlier, um, the more that we're able to do that and the more that we're able to be open and in a safe kind of environment to discuss these things, I think uh, we'll, it'll benefit everybody because, number one, we'll, we'll learn more about uh, the ways that we can protect each other and we'll learn more about the ways that we can protect each other against uh, people who don't recognize uh, these important principles of consent. But at the same time, I think it will empower people to share their stories in a way that will really help by breaking down these kind of very reductive stereotypes that are often applied to the issue of sexual violence. Um, you know, there's there's very, you can picture in your mind the, the simple caricature of what this really is. And oftentimes that's very different from what happens in the real world. And the only way that we can bridge that gap is by en enabling people to talk about it and share their stories. And if this policy helps to do that, then um, I'm very happy that it exists.